Hello and welcome to the At Scale Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Keith. The show is being brought to you by Clarity Business Solutions, a small business focused on systems and software engineering based out of the Maryland and D.C. area. At Scale looks to bring you interesting discussions of engineering topics with people who have real-life experience using and implementing software solutions around popular products and architectures in the technology industry today. Being the first episode, I wanted to talk a little more about the show itself. Today's discussion is about the Elastic Stack. It's a story of how myself and a coworker, Mike Clark, started to use Kibana and Elasticsearch and realized how powerful a tool it could be. In the future, we're hoping to bring you some more discussions and stories about MongoDB, Apache NiFi, and any other topic or tool that might make your engineering lives easier. And now on with the episode. Okay, so today we're going to talk about advancing the Elastic Stack. And this is sort of a podcast version of a presentation we did at the data science meetup um, in November. Uh, my name is Mike Keith. I'm a software engineer. I've been doing this for about 12 years. Um, with me is... I'm Mike Clark. I'm a DevOps engineer. I've been doing this uh, again for about 12 years. And um, we want to talk first about kind of what we were going to go over in the podcast a little bit in the presentation we did. Um, the project and a problem overview, some a little bit of an Elastic Stack overview, and what Kibana and Elasticsearch can do for you. Um, you might want to tell you a little bit about our environment and the problem we were trying to solve, and initially um, the things that led us to the larger use of Elastic Stack, Elasticsearch that we're using now. Um, basically, we have an environment in our uh, work that is over multiple geographic zones uh, and regions, and we have an application that just ingests a lot of data all the time, um, along with several web services that back that ingest process as well as a UI. Um, and there's a lot in those logs that kind of tell us about what our customers are doing and and. There's a general systems that send us information along with a customer base who wants to know about that information that is being sent to us. Um, all this kind of stuff is put into JBoss or comes through JBoss servers and um, is, gets logged there. Um, plus, we also have a data archive for our application that has all of the information that gets sent to us over time. Um, Next is a little bit of an architecture overview. Basically, there's like four UI servers that go into a regular relational database, and then there's another set of web services that accept our data that eventually either put into the SQL database for a subset of that information or uh, write the data as an archival format into, into um, flat files. Um, what we've started to figure out is that since we have so many servers that are writing these web services, we had kind of issues with figuring out where you know, we could find the problems with our um, server applications. And we would have issues where we were looking for a certain kind of stack trace or a um, some kind of... Uh, 400 error or 500 error that the user was getting, and we couldn't really find it that easily. So we started to look at um, different ways that we kind of help ourselves with that. And we realized that what we, were had been, we had been doing is 
really inefficient. I mean, we were kind of using a technology called cluster SSH on Linux servers to just log into 12 servers at a time, do a bunch of cat and grep and awk and um, look at that output and then manually take stats back from those things and put them into a spreadsheet to try and figure out where, you know, where did we have a problem? Were we failing a lot of records for some reason? Was there, was there some way to do that? But we didn't, we didn't really have a way of telling over a large period of time because our logs only went back several days, maybe seven to 10, or in some cases, maybe 30, but nothing more than that. Um, so we started to look at, you know, what, what was the technologies that could help us out? And like, if you wanted to kind of go into that, we were looking there, what we found. Sure. So uh, it was about the time shortly after I joined the team that, um, you know, Mike kind of was uh, conveying to me his frustrations with how to go about uh, getting logs from the different servers. So one of the tasks uh, I had was to look into tools and, and products that were out there that we could use to have a centralized logging system uh, to make his life easier as well as the rest of the developers on the team uh, and also help us better keep track of our services um, and our performance uh, kind of in a centralized location. So I basically went out and looked at what different options there were out there for us to use. Uh, you know, come to some of the things that I looked at were Greylog, Grafana, um, Airbrake, Splunk, uh, of course, the Elastic Stack. And, you know, as I kind of looked at all these tools, um, I think the, the leading factor that led me to the Elastic Stack was the fact that it was readily available and Elastic provided a tool that encompassed the entire chain from tailing the logs to shipping them, enriching them, uh, and filtering them, and then eventually storing them in Elasticsearch as well as having a, a UI interface. So they provided the complete end-to-end -end solution, and that was sort of the driving force uh, behind the choice to, to go with the Elastic Stack. Uh, as part of the Elastic Stack, there are five, uh, more of the CSA, four major components, and then one that, that lays across all four of these uh, primary components. So we have Elasticsearch, which is our distributed RESTful search and analytics engine. Uh, so that's where we're storing all the data that we're collecting. Logstash is a server-side data processing pipeline. This is where we can do things like filter our data, determine where the data, uh, different types of inputs. We can en enhance the data, either add fields to it, um, compute new fields based on data, and then output that out to different, different locations. In this case, Elasticsearch is what we're using for storage. Uh, then there's Kibana, which is the UI piece on top of it, which allows you to visualize your data create metrics and dashboards that have visualizations of, of varying types uh, to give you kind of a quick overview look of your data as well as drill down uh, into the details of that data. Then there's beats, which are lightweight shippers. Uh, they have different types of beats. There's file beats for shipping and, and tailing log files. There's metric beat for getting uh, system performance metrics such as CPU usage, RAM. Uh, there's also a, a network beat uh, or packet beat, it's called, for um, getting back statistics on network data. Uh, and they have a couple other beats that are out there, um, but those are the, the primary one we use is file beats. And then there's XPack, which is a, uh, a layer of tools that enhances those four products, and they provide different features from securing the, the entire Elastic Stack to providing monitoring to machine learning. Um, and there's, there's a couple other functions that we're not going to get into detail on all those. But the primary one we use XPAC for is the monitoring piece, which is free with their basic license. 
So our initial solution uh, was now we decided on what we're going to use. I then uh, just spun up a single node instance that I installed all the components on. So I installed Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana, Filebeats, uh, and then XPack on that single node and began shipping our application server logs to this centralized server. Uh, nice thing about this is was we were getting near real-time logging. So once I had the file beats configured on our servers, JBoss servers, and we're tailing the files that I wanted to, they were all coming back to the centralized system, you know, with delays in, in the less than a second of time. So we're getting that data as it's occurring. Um, and our initial thought was we just got the data in. So now we have just the raw log lines uh, stored in Elasticsearch. We can look at them. We can search on them. Uh, and that was great until Mike kept coming to me asking for more and more <laughs> yeah. ideas. Yeah, we. I, I think once I was able to kind of search through this stuff and get it aggregated across from eight different servers, I said I started to see trends just from keywords I was searching on. And it became apparent that I didn't just want the um, the the just in the raw log file. I actually wanted to be able to use some of the graphing capability of Kibana to take numbers that were coming out of that data, maybe some sort of response time numbers or whatever, and I wanted to be able to graph those and actually tell what our performance was to say, oh, well, I want to count by this field, but that field is actually just a text in this log string. Well, can we pull that that string out and make it its own thing? And then I can aggregate over that and start to count how many log lines actually show up with that field. And then you can start to categorize the different log lines that mean different things to your data and your, your system. Um, so then we kind of got into the business of starting to parse our logs. <laughs> right, yeah, so that's what kind of we're the importance and in, in the key piece in the log stash comes in here. So we have our definer inputs and basically that's file beats shipping. Um, so basically we're saying the input to log stash will be the file beat um, shippers. So it knows to look at, listen on a certain port and those lines come in. Uh, we have our output, which writes to Elasticsearch. And then the middle piece is our filters. And this is where we can use um, built-in filters in, in Logstash. We use the, the Grok filter for this particular case, which is basically uses regular expressions to, to pull out um, and add fields based on the log lines that you have created. And there are some custom Grok filters. There's a, a one that's already designed to parse out Apache logs and, and different type of things. In this case, we wrote custom um, Grok parsers to pull out the data that we wanted. And as Mike mentioned, we started out with sort of the key metrics that we were initially looking for were things like what were response codes, what were response times. Um, yeah, the IP, the things uh, that the server was sending to us, um, what uh, user they were using if they were logging in with the user, uh, many other kind of access information you could get about who, who kind of was sending us this data and what, what was about and were they having an issue they, were they sending us bad data um, and just lots of other uh, oh like what URL they were hitting that that's kind of another big big deal as far as like knowing which endpoint they're they're failing against is a big information like what what was part of their you know their request that, that failed if it did fail or if it was successful maybe there's information we don't know about what they're asking for or what they're trying to send us. <laughs> 
Right. And then now, so now that we've parsed out our logs, we've been able to create some useful dashboards, which are a group of visualizations and or tables that give us kind of instantaneous real-time snapshot views of, of our performance. So we can see a real-time update of how many, uh, what all the different system names are that are sending to us. And those get it refreshed every, you know, every minute or every 30 seconds based on how we pull those. But uh, we can now see a complete list of systems that are sending us information. We can see things like uh, how long are taking services that are we're calling taking to respond. So then we can kind of got to the point where we can say, is it something that we're doing wrong or our services are, are having an issue with, or is the issue with another service that we're calling? So before we, it was hard to differentiate those two. Now we were able to um, correlate a, a slow in res- response time from a service we're calling to a backup in our ingest or, or something along those lines. So it's nice to be able to see that correlation in data. Um, yeah, I think one of the big things for me is that we, when we got this, we, we have a lot of services we call out to, and they sometimes are hard to tell if they're a bottleneck or if we're doing something to them that makes them kind of fall over and maybe not be as reliable because we're a pretty high volume user of some services that we have and their internal kind of business services for our, our field that we work in. And they, their teams we work with on a daily basis, but they might not be able to, to differentiate the data we're trying to get from them versus all the rest of their requests. Um, but through Kibana, we were able to take a look at, you know, Oh, well we just got, this many requests to us, and we tried to call their service uh, a bunch of times, and we could see that ramp up where we have a backlog of things. It starts to ramp up. We see them start to get slow, and then all of a sudden they start failing. and And it was it wasn't necessarily a, a thing that they at the time that the team that we had been working with at the time could could identify um, in their data because we were sort of in the noise. But apparently whatever we were doing seemed to be maybe a causing factor of some issues they had, which, which once we were able to really characterize that with Kibana, we were able to take that to them, show what was happening, and we sort of both worked through those issues and figured out like a better way to handle it. It caused us to make architectural and code changes that then was kind of playing nicer with their service so that we didn't cause them problems and thus cause ourselves problems. Um, and I don't think we really would have been able to find that um, that solution as easy as we did without having, you know, the power of what we were doing with the logs. Right. You know, it, it um, sort of came funny that we now knew sort of more about the performance of this other service yeah. than they knew about it themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's so. tough. I mean, they had their own, their own priorities. So it's uh, obviously we were much more concerned with their performance to, uh, for our thing than they were concerned with their general usage, which, whichever uh, that happens. Um, but another thing we started to do is we have a customer for our application that they started to want to know a lot more data about what, you know, things that were coming into the system. And at the time, we had just had a problem where we had to move off of one old relational database to a newer virtualized platform database. So we were going from hardware to virtualized servers, and we couldn't use the same disk space. We didn't have the same disk space or server um, power that we had previously, and we also weren't using the old um, uh, relational database, the same style thing. So we had to take a bunch of data offline, and our user, our customer base, still wanted to know about some of that data. So we started to add things into our web service that would pluck 
information off of the the documents we were being sent and put it into our logs because that was the easiest thing for us to do because we had Kibana and it was super simple to search. So we started to say, oh, well, what if we just pulled this one? We were all already saying, well, what's the user? Now let's go and pull out one another field out of the JSON data that they were sending us. And um, we kind of did that a few times and it helped us because, but the only problem was we didn't have that data previous to when we implemented that Grok parser that Mike was talking about. We would, we would only have it into the future and it helped, but we just started to say, well, well, what, you know, we kind of changed from looking at who is talking to us to what they're talking to us about. And at that point we sort of said, well, we have all of this back data. We have this archive of information and we had done some things already to archive that in an Avro format, which happens to be very easily to convert into JSON and JSON's a native codec for Logstash and Elasticsearch to interpret and insert into their system. And we sort of had this frame shift of, well, why don't we make a cluster of Elasticsearch that just stores our data and not put these things into our logging server? Let's re, you know, because the logging server wasn't really made to be that big. It was made to look at back maybe a month or two of data, a few, several months of data, but a smaller portion of it. And the actual information we had was much larger than that, like, a lot by many orders of magnitude. Um, and it just was this big kind of aha moment of, wow, yeah, this thing would be great. I mean, and it, and it really can just easily get it in there. It already has a front end. We don't have to build that yet for even playing around with the information and getting this data for people. Um, and at the time we'd been considering building something with Accumulo or other big data um, Hadoop-based applications and we were kind of, as a small team of six or seven people, we were sort of, um, I guess, what's the best word? The, it was staggering the amount of development we would have had to do to get ourselves just up and running to even search the data and know something about it. Whereas with Elasticsearch, we just had to get it in there in a, J, in a format we already had, which was Avro into JSON. And at that point, we could search it and make, it, make sure that the whole search mechanism was useful and then build a UI for our customers afterward. And that's sort of where we're at right now. It, it kind of created this situation where we can make something really useful all like very quickly and then build upon that and have it be useful for our customers throughout the whole process instead of waiting for a big development cycle and a, and a, and a lot of things before we could even really do much with it. Um, yeah, and I think and, and to that effect, you know, one of the other... Um, kind of draws to the elastic stack was, was how easily it scaled. So, you know, we went from a single node instance and that that was easy to get up, set up and running. And then, um, you know, it was almost just as easy to scale out the, um, the cluster as a whole to handle the data. So we went from having a single node with one instance of Logstash, one instance of Kibana, one instance of Elasticsearch to now a, um, a distributed architecture where we have, you know, I think currently we're at 20 data nodes for Elasticsearch. We have two master nodes coordinating those. We have two client Elasticsearch nodes uh, for submitting requests to. And then we have four Logstash nodes that are handling the ingest pipelines that are coming in from our file beats, which are distributed across 20 or so different servers sending their stuff in. And, 
And it was very easy to do this. Uh, you know, we started out small. So we initially had, I think, 10 or so nodes in the cluster or something yeah, like that something and, uh, for Elasticsearch like data nodes. Uh, we started filling those up and, and then uh, exhibited some things where we started to see maybe slower search performance. So we just scaled out horizontally and um, very easily Elasticsearch handled the rebalancing of shards. So we didn't have to take care of any of that. And it just, it, it worked. And one of the neat things about that was that we, you know, whenever you put it data into a platform like this, you really don't know what the correlation of disk space to your file is. Because you know what the JSON, you might have a JSON document and you may know how many kilobytes that takes up on disk in its flat file form, but you don't know how big that's going to be once it gets indexed by some database or some um, cloud architecture or something like Elasticsearch. So it gave us a good thing of like, well, let's get several months of data in here and we can see what that data footprint looks like on disk for this. And then we could then build out from there and make some good estimates based on what we know of our back data and actually allocate and um, allocate more service to it to say, oh, well, this is how big we need to be and be really confident about that answer because then you've seen how big it needs to store. You didn't really have to put build the whole server at once because in kind of the old style of maybe like Oracle or some other big databases, you had to buy that server. You had to buy it that big. You had to buy a bunch of disk, you had to get a bunch of RAM, to get a bunch of CPUs, and, and you had to have that mainframe thing built up. And if you didn't size it right, you had to kind of buy another one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas this is you sort of had a bunch of small things, and, well, you just get more small things and stick them on there and attach them, and now it all works. You don't have to throw away the thing you just did. Right, exactly, um, yep. And uh, along – that kind of brings us a little bit to – when we did the presentation back in November, we did a little bit of a Twitter demo – um, I don't know if we'll go through that here, but one thing to highlight is that for what Mike said about how easy it was for this presentation, we were able to take there's there's ingest uh, what is it called a beat I think there's a beat for Twitter data that you just give it the URL to the Twitter API and it just starts pulling data off of there and starts putting it into Elasticsearch. Yeah, it's it's actually an input filter. Yeah, it's for, an input filter or an right. input plugin for Logstash. Yeah, and I mean that, that. that made like just doing this presentation easy because we didn't have to worry about building a bunch of stuff to to kind of show what we we wanted. Um, because some of the things we were doing with the data that was different than logging was we starting to relate different fields and we wanted to be able to count on um, all of the specific little fields that were in our data. And it sort of, we found some correlations in Twitter, things like screen names and the text. And we were able to look at the highest ranked or maybe the highest volume of retweeted screen names. And that was a a valuable piece of information kind of that correlated to um, things that we would deal in our kind of, at work business data is there was a lot of questions about, oh, well, this field, how many times does it show up across all of your, you know, this value of this field, how many times does it show up? Or, or is there different categories? Is there big hits for these kind of things? Um, and I think that kind of brings us to the end of what we talked about with the, uh, besides the Twitter demo piece that we're not doing on, can't really do easily over podcast. So uh, to wrap up kind of everything we want to talk about with Logstash, Campana, and Elasticsearch, we wanted to talk through about five different thoughts we had that are sort of lessons learned that we've been learning over the last several months of using it. Um, And some of them we've learned since our last presentation in November. 
Um, and right now we just got some notes. I figure I'm just going to go down and we're going to have a little bit of discussion on them and then kind of wrap up. So uh, the first thing is that you should really think about your indexing strategy. And this is whether you're using Elasticsearch and Kibana for your logs or for more than just your logs and having big data sets. Because the, the thing we ran into, and it was just the nature of how easy everything is to set up, we just defaulted stuff to start identifying indexes by which server um, the data came from. And what ended up that ended up doing is that we had an index pattern that was wanted to search over all of the server's data at the same time. And then when we created indexes that were per day, per server, it ended up making so many different indexes that it was a, exceeding the, um, there's some shard limits in Elasticsearch just for efficiency of searching that it sets for memory usage and everything. And it just kind of blew up. <laughs> and we realized after the fact, it was like, wow, actually, we didn't really need to make it per server. We, we really should have just done it one day one index per day to make it a time series logging searches easier and then have all of the uh, different servers feed their their information into that one index and then identify themselves with some other fields because there is like source fields and you know which server the log came from you didn't have to have that be an index to show it um, did you have any like, yeah, thoughts that, on that Mike? You know, and I think the kind of key takeaway is you don't want to have a lot of small indices uh, you'd rather have fewer indices of larger size. So we went from having, you know, say 3,000 indices that were a couple hundred megabytes each to then combining these two down to, say, a third of that, or even in some cases, I, I want to say it was maybe a quarter of that that were now in the gigabytes of size range. Um, and so that helped with our shard count. It helped out with the number of indexes we were storing. And then it also helped, I think, a little bit on the search performance side because uh, there wasn't as many indexes to search across when it was looking for data. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff you can find out on the documentation in Elasticsearch's website. So, I mean, to go over what the shards are and how that all is split up, they have a lot of recommendations that we're not going to really go into on the podcast. But um, it's definitely worthwhile reading through their docs and, and finding out that kind of those sort of nuggets because it leads you down – Maybe the easiest path is one way, but they may have something that says, hey, you know, you should think about it, configuring it this different way in your certain situation. Yeah, and it's, it, you know, kind of the case for us is I jumped into following their, their tutorials for setting this up, and yeah. you just look at the default settings. And so, it, you know, the kind of point like Mike's getting at is just think about your data, how often it's coming in, and how you want to index it prior to, to setting that all up just to save yourself the hassle yeah. down the road. And, and we'll mention something a little later on that, can help with that um, if you were to kind of index incorrectly to begin with and you want to change that. Um, it's another one of the things we've learned. Yeah, and the uh, the next thing, I guess, of a lesson learned is um, document IDs. Um, this is a, not so much something we, we cared about with our logging information for our web servers, but it definitely was very relevant when we were putting our business, um, business data into an Elasticsearch cluster. We already had unique identifiers for all of our data, so it made sense for us to start assigning the document ID in Elasticsearch to be that identifier. And the reason it worked for us, is part of the reason we started to do that is that one, we wanted it to be a quicker to get it. And a lot of times our customers came to us with that ID and not say an internal Elasticsearch ID. But the other thing we started to notice is, is that we were getting duplication of data 
based on how we were ingesting things with FileBeat from the JSON files into Logstash that then went into Elasticsearch. And we never really were able to identify exactly why that duplication was happening. It very well could have been our own configuration and the way we were going about things. But one of the ways that you can prevent that is if you're making a deterministic document ID and you're not letting Elasticsearch define that, then it will not create a random one. It'll essentially just overwrite the old document that is essentially the same thing. And so, so even though maybe there is some, we lose some efficiency there uh, because we might be still writing documents multiple times, it's the same data. So it's just going to overwrite the thing that's there or it won't write it at all, depending on your settings. Um, so that's something to do a lot, put some thought into is how you're going to do document IDs. And if, if it matters to you, the random gen generated version of the document ID, or if you want to be, have your own determine documents, uh, right. IDs and everything. And, and I mean, if you look through the documentation, I, I think from a performance standpoint, the ideal solution that Elasticsearch recommends is, is going with a unique randomly generated ID on, that, that, that they'll generate on their own. Um, I think for us in our particular use case, in our data, the way we went about it uh, was more efficient for us and how we were using our data. And as Mike mentioned, for avoiding duplication. So again, it's just another one of those things to uh, think a little bit about beforehand, uh, you know, when you're looking at your data model and, and how you want to get that into Elasticsearch. Yeah, and the next lesson learned we had is that, and we actually got this one from an Elasticsearch engineer um, who had suggested it to us, who actually attended our data science meetup. And he talked about that our usage, the original way we were putting the data in, we were just leaving it to be the default mappings that get created when the index is created. And that's super expensive. That basically takes any field that has characters and turns it into a text field um, index along with a keyword. And there's a lot of, uh, and, and the difference is there, if you if you look on the documentation, the text will actually do text searching and free text, uh, like text ranking indexes, and, and it'll tokenize your data. And, and that really wasn't appropriate for a lot of our fields. There was maybe one field in our data that needed that. And every single other one of them really was just good to be a keyword search, which you can still do things like wildcard searching over. And that was kind of enough. Um, yeah, I think the only thing we lost from that was not being able to do fuzzy matches, which we didn't really care about. Right. Yeah. For those types of data. Exactly. And, and usually, unless you have a wall of text uh, that's, that's, say, a paragraphs of written information, you really don't want to do the fuzzy matching. Like you, you might, if, if you just, we have a bunch of things that are kind of key value type of um, information where it's an identifier that's coming in as a text thing or it's an enum from the code. And that, I mean, you know, maybe we want to do a wildcard search on those things, but we don't really care about matching when it was kind of like a thing. <laughs> uh, and that, that also improves your ingest uh, and, and your data footprint from, from a storage space size because making those indexes for that text and fuzzy matching and everything is much larger on your disk than the keyword. Um, that kind of and I just and and where we saw that that difference is was our ingest performance. So um, we you know we made these changes to the mappings and we were able to ingest data um, quicker than we were before because um, it's less overhead that Elasticsearch is performing as the data is coming in. Um, and then but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, one or two topics here. What the big big change was that helped with our ingest performance. Yeah, and then um, another thing that we found uh, through upgrading, actually. We upgraded more recently to Elasticsearch 6.1.1, 1. 
and we were on 5.4, and there was a big change in between 5.4 and 6.1 in that they deprecated the use of the types, being able to define your own document type, and that was a big change. And one thing that helped us out with that is that Elasticsearch also has a reindex API that is, from what I can tell, super efficient. And it can do a lot of powerful things in that you can reindex from one index and take all the things you had of a certain type in that one index, change them to the default document type, and then also use um, uh, a painless scripting language that they have implemented in the API to inline um, rewrite fields as it's writing to that new index. And uh, it was pretty much like a watershed moment for me to realize, wow, I mean, if you've stored your information in a, in a way that wasn't really optimal, it's kind of not that that painful of an operation to just change it because the reindex API kind of goes through and just powers through everything. And, and I mean, we had maybe, I think it was something like 20... 20 billion documents or something like that that re-indexed in, you know, overnight or over a day or so. <laughs> it was it was a very large amount of data that was able to, like, transfer over new, into new indexes and, and be able to do. And it, it, it do, it'll be definitely your biggest friend when you start using this to really learn what that re-index API can do as, long, as well as dive into what the painless scripting language can do. And that's something that's used across a lot of the Elasticsearch API, the painless stuff. Um, because you can th do things, it's it's obviously something you want to be very careful about because it can change things as they identify in there in the reindex API. You can change the document ID, you can change the index it's going to, you can change a lot of other uh, key fields that, um, if you did it wrong, are going to definitely mess that data up. <laughs> so right. it it doesn't ever let you go from the same index to itself, which is a nice feature of it because then that means you can't really screw up your current data you you're just going to have to retry it and, and you'll you'll essentially you might waste some time because you might re-index all the way into something else and realize wow this is not usable i need to do this again and hopefully it didn't take you you did a smaller set, sample set first to make sure that it really was working the way you were expecting right and and this kind of ties back to the you know coming up with an indexing strategy ahead of time and in our case we didn't but we were able to sort of correct for that because we had this re-index api available and you know, the, the one caveat to the a little bit is you need to have that storage space available to add these additional um, indexes into your Elasticsearch data. So you know, if you've got two terabytes of data and you want to re-index all that, you need another two terabytes of space in order to be able to put that there until you can then come back and delete the other indexes after you're finished. Yeah, um, the other funny thing that happened with this too is uh, you also need enough memory on your server, that on your the node that you're running that re-index command on because... It allows you to do things like making um, workers that are multi-threading the re-index commands. And you definitely need to be careful with that because while it's not really super destructive, it will bring down the node. Like I did this on our Kibana node and all of a sudden I was wondering, why is Kibana not responding to me? And I realized a few minutes later it died. We had to restart Kibana. I looked at it and the last thing it was doing was this re-index command and it had been running so many threads because of one of the command, one of the options I gave it essentially spawned 80 or 90 threads of this thing all running at once, which overloaded the memory. Um, but that also gives you a lot of control too, which is the nice part. It can get it to be really efficient because if you run it just with one worker, the re-indexing isn't going to go all that fast. But if you run it with many threads, 
it's going to go way faster. And you just kind of have to tune that to your available resources to be able to uh, make it make it work better for you. Yeah, Mike's little foray into spinning up a bunch of threads led us to spinning up two dedicated client nodes that we could then <laughs> run these these yeah. reindex APIs uh, against those, which you know had more RAM allocated to them. They didn't have anything else running, whereas the other other VM had Kibana on there as well as a, an Elasticsearch client node. Um, so we offloaded the the strain on that node to two dedicated servers uh, and that that's helped a good bit. Yeah. And that, that kind of speaking about like load on all the servers, it kind of brings us to our last point. Um, that was a big lesson learned for us very recently actually is uh, tuning from the default settings for log stash and file beat. Um, if you have a need to ingest a lot of data very quickly, there's a lot of things you can do with the queue settings that can benefit you. Um, there's, Trying to think what the names of them are. I, I think we could probably maybe make some link. I'll have to make a note to make some links in the show notes for this about uh, to the specific settings we were using. But essentially, we took um, between both the file beats and log stash, we were able to make some settings to the queuing mechanisms so that it was more appropriate to the type of data we had. And what we were having is we have a lot of small records that were going in. So we want them to be batched up into large batch operations and not use a lot of connections to Elasticsearch. We want bigger amounts of data to go in all at once. And originally we were getting, I think recently it was something about 2,500 documents a second inserting through each log stash node that we had. We had three log stash nodes originally. And We've been working on it for weeks where we've been looking at this and say, this should, should go faster. We were looking at file beat. We were trying to change all the file beat settings and we were changing queue and memory settings on those and pipelines and making them be more multi-threaded. Uh, we tried opening less files at a time so it would send more from less files. We had it opening every file at the same time and nothing seemed to have an effect until actually today we were working with it and a suggestion from one of the... Um, Elasticsearch engineers that we've been in contact with. And I had been thinking this idea myself, I just hadn't really gone to look at the settings for Logstash, is to change, uh, to give Logstash more workers so that it was it can use more of your processor speeds. And, and that was the thing we were seeing is Logstash, we were seeing Logstash wasn't using a lot of processor, it was building up memory and then using the garbage collector to bring it back off. So it really wasn't doing a ton of work all the time. And we changed this queue setting to send a larger batch at the same time, as well as to have many more workers than its default was. I think the default workers is four or eight. It, it defaults to the number of cores. Oh, uh, the number CPU, of cores, right. right. So then we changed it to four times, was it? Three times. Three times that. So we went to three times that, that cores, so that any dead time in between those threads, the other worker could kind of context switch and pick that work up. And what that did is immediately when I started up that log ser stash server, it went from that 2,500 and 20% CPU usage to 95% CPU usage, full memory usage, and about 10,000 documents a second for one server. So essentially tripled our throughput without making any more changes to our file beats. And that, I think, was a huge thing to do. Is it, And, I mean, it's kind of like a simple thing to think of, like, wow, okay, I should tune the settings from the default. But it is like a – it's something definitely relevant that you will want to look at when you start to do this. And if you care about how fast stuff is coming into your cluster, you, you need to really tune it for what your data is because 
you might have large documents in a small volume, and that might need a different settings than what we had. Yeah, um, and along with the number of workers is also the batch size, too. That was the maximum number of events that an individual worker um, will collect and start processing through the inputs and outputs in, in Elasticsearch. So the combination of those two, um, I think the default for batch size is 125. We increased that to 5,000. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, essentially if you're, if you're not, I think our key indicator obviously was if we're not saturating the cpu on the log slash node you can increase that batch size number until you hit that that threshold that you're not crossing um and that that was as mike mentioned huge for us in terms of a performance increase with very you know a change of two two settings in the configuration file yeah so i mean i think that kind of wraps up all the stuff we want to talk about elasticsearch today um thanks for listening and uh i guess I don't have anything else more to say. Is there any other thoughts you yeah, had, Mike? Yeah, I think um, just you know some of the just general conclusions and takeaways that we had from you know doing the presentation and, and kind of using this is just uh, it's a low barrier to entry to get started with the tool. It's very easy to install. There are RPM packages available. Um, it, you can essentially get in a single node server up and running in a matter of you know hours uh, without really knowing what you're doing. Uh, and then from there, uh, you know we were. I guess pleasantly surprised at how quickly we can search across all the data, especially once we scaled out our cluster. Uh, we have, you know, probably 20, 25 terabytes of data, and we're still getting uh, good response times for searches across all that data. Um, we talked about the scalability, just how easily it scales horizontally. So um, as you do get more data, you can spin up more nodes. So that way you're not decreasing your search performance and those types of things. Yeah, and one thing to note about the data we're having, the search performance we get, is we're we're on all virtualized servers. We're, we don't have any hardware. It's all stuff that's on an OpenStack um, installation with shared resources with many other groups. <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's impressive the, the throughput we get based on that we're not running on, we're running on, on virtualized stuff instead of actual hardware. Right. We don't have so, bare metal, you know, yeah. you know, ridiculous amounts of RAM Who wants to deal and, with that? Anyway, right. 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 <laughs> um, you know, and then the other piece I'd is, rather just spin up a VM and have it work. <laughs> right, right. It's like, when you need another server, you don't have to wait for the delivery, man. You just kind of spin <laughs> just, it up and you go get good. another one. <laughs> um, and I think just the last thing was just how, um, you know, Kibana is a very powerful tool for visualizing the data. And there's, a, there's a lot of built in, visualizations uh, that come right out of the box with it that uh, you can do everything from histograms to line graphs to charts to tables to pie charts. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun it, to play it, with. There's, there's a lot of cool things you can get um, that help you visualize your data. So, All right, cool. Well, yeah. thanks for listening. And um, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the At Scale podcast brought to you by Clarity Business Solutions. You can find our website at www.claritybizsol.com, which is spelled C-L-A-R-I-T-Y-B-I-Z-S-O-L.com. You can follow us at Twitter and Instagram at ClarityBizSol. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast or questions about the company, take a look at our website or email us at info at ClarityBizSol.com. Please mention the podcast in your message so that we know you're a listener.